glory of God the Father. The book of Matthew is pre- preeminently, um, okay, we do have it up there. It's preeminently about Jesus' kingship, I believe. So we're calling this series, the book of Matthew, The King is Come. The King is Come. And the story of Jesus is a long one. I would argue that the story of Jesus is the story of the whole Bible. And in Romans chapter uh, 16, beginning in verse 25, this is what Paul says at the very end of the book of Romans. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So the Apostle Paul says that the mystery of Christ was a revelation, that the coming of Christ, the gospel of Christ was, was the revelation, the revealing of a mystery that was kept secret for long ages. That's what it says. But has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. So the coming of Christ, was in, it was mysterious. There's all these prophecies about the Christ and all these types and all these shadows and all these Old Testament images. But it wasn't clear what was going to happen until Christ came. And now that he has come, we know that the king is come. But you see, this was so, Christ so broke Israel's expectations of what they thought their king should be that most of the Jews missed it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that the king has come. Do you get it? Do you understand that the king has come? In Jesus Christ? That's probably the most important question you can ask yourself this morning. That's what we want to talk about from Matthew chapter 1. If you, if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, one verse. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God's word. You may be seated. We're going to see three truths from our passage, our verse this morning. Number one, Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. Number two, Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with David. Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with David. And number three, Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. <clears throat> So that's what we're going to talk about, but before we do, I want to just talk briefly about some introductory material about the book of Matthew, and hopefully you'll find this helpful. When we look at any book of the Bible, there's a few questions we want to ask so that we can understand it in its context. <clears throat> the One of the first questions you want to ask is, who wrote it? <clears throat> we don't always know who wrote the book, but this book has uh, always been attributed to Matthew, the apostle, who had an alternate name, perhaps like uh, Simon had two names, Simon Peter. Uh, apparently, uh, perhaps his alternate name was Levi, the tax collector. The unanimous testimony of church tradition attributes this gospel to the apostle 
Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. There is no example that I'm aware of anywhere of this gospel being claimed to be have, uh, have been written by somebody else. And there is some internal evidence in the book of Matthew. For example, uh, in Matthew's telling of the account of Matthew, he refers to his name as Matthew. But in both Mark and in Luke, his name is Levi. And so that's evidence that Matthew had a... Uh, uh, had personal interest in that particular story because he refers to the name as Matthew rather than Levi. So it's almost certainly written by Matthew the Apostle. When was it written? Most scholars believe that Matthew used Mark as a source when compiling his gospel, which, which would have meant that uh, Matthew had to have been written in the mid, probably the mid-60s at the earliest. And then there's some internal evidence that the temple... And the Sadducees, who were religious leaders closely associated with the temple, some of the, some of the way he writes seems to suggest that those were still factors in uh, potential factors in the lives of those who would be reading his gospel, which would mean that his gospel would have had to have been written before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Okay, so it was probably written in the mid uh, to late 60s A.D. Who was it written to? Most scholars believe that the gospel was written primarily, though not exclusively, to Jewish Christians or to those with a Jewish background. Why is that? Because, get this, Matthew alone quotes or references the Old Testament some 70-something 70, uh, 70 times, while the other three gospels combined do so just over 100 times. So it's clear that Matthew's burden in the gospel by continuously quoting the Old Testament is he has a special burden for Jewish background people who would understand and know the Old Testament. And it's an apologetic, if you will, it's an argument, it's a defense to prove to Jewish background people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the king. That Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. And so what does this all mean, Pastor? What is this all? This, why do I care about all this? Well, I'll tell you. What it means is this. It means when you, hope, when you pick up your Bible and you read it, you are reading words written by someone who walked in the dust of Jesus' feet. That's what it means. It means you are reading the testimony of someone who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw Jesus, heard his teaching, saw him heal the sick, saw him raise the dead. And saw him risen after his crucifixion. These aren't idle words. These are the testimony of a human being who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. Who saw an unbelievable man. And was called by him to walk in his footsteps and to learn from him. The man of Jesus of Nazareth. There's this picture I want you to show. Can you show that picture? Of the, the manuscript. This is a picture of the, what's called the P1 manuscript. It's, uh, it's of the, the, you probably can't see it there, and most of you probably don't read Greek. <laughs> but it says, it said, the first line there says, Biblos, you could probably recognize the Bs, it's the same, we get it from Greek. Biblos Geneseos means book of Genesis, or book of the beginnings, or book of genealogy. We're going to call it, this is, this is the first line from the book of Matthew. This manuscript is dated to around 200 A.D. So it's almost 1,800 years old. When Matthew, I just wanted you to see this because when Matthew wrote this book, he wrote it, um, 
Well, there's debate exactly about how it played out, but the earth, the, the, his Greek manuscript would have been written, it would have looked, his handwriting would have probably, you know, might have looked something just like that when he wrote it, when he, when he with his own hands wrote the words of his book to tell other people about who Jesus, about how Jesus was the king. It would have looked something like that. Okay. Matthew understood that he lived at the very climax of human history and that this man who called him from the tax collector's booth to follow him was more than a man. He was the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. And as we'll see, much more than the King of Israel, he's the King of the world, the King of the cosmos. And that's what Matthew is burdened to show us. So three things that we want to see. Number one is that Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. The first words, as we just said, says, our tra- my translation says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The words are Biblos Geneseos Yesu Christu, the book of the of Genesis of Jesus Christ. So what it could mean is it could mean the origins of Jesus or the beginnings of Jesus, or it could refer to the genealogy of Jesus, which immediately follows uh, from that, from the verse number one there. The phrase, I believe the phrase, uh, scholars debate about how, how much he intends to, what he intends to mean by that saying. He could just be referring to the genealogy. He could be referring just to the aspects of Jesus's childhood where he's talking about the beginnings of Jesus's life and ministry, or it could even be referring to the whole book about talking about how the beginning of Jesus's entire work in the world uh, as the beginning, as contrast to the continuation of his work in the world through the Holy Spirit. But regardless of exactly what it means, given Matthew's, given Matthew's deep concern to quote, quote the Old Testament, I, I think he means a little bit more uh, than just the, the genealogy uh, of Jesus. This, this particular phrase, Biblos Geneseos, is only used two times in the Greek Old Testament, which was popularly used during Jesus' day by Greek-speaking Jews. And, and the, the phrase is only used two places in the Greek Old Testament, and they're both in the book of Genesis. One refers to the creation of the heavens and the earth, and the other refers to the creation of man, or the creation of mankind. So you might have read in your Bibles in Genesis, it says, here's the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, or the origins of the heavens and the earth, and here's the book of the genealogy of man, or, or the origins of mankind. That's what, it, that's what it means. That's what he's saying. Here's, the, here's how these things came about. Biblos Genesios, the book of the Genesis. Here's how these things came about. And it seems to me then, by using this exact phrase, I just, I can't help but think that Matthew is alluding to those passages that these Jews would know and understand and recognize. And what he is saying then, I think, that the beginnings, the account of the beginning of the heavens and the earth, which is crucial to understanding the world as we know it, and the account of the beginnings of humanity, which is crucial to understanding the world as we know it. These are these are complete, these are, these are ultimate crucial understandings of the world that provide your whole framework of how you think about life and reality. I believe by, he's adding Jesus to that number. 
The book of the, in other words, the book of the origins of Christ, how Christ came about, is, is, is as important to your understanding of the world as, as to how the world itself came about, as to how humanity itself came about. You can't understand the world unless you understand that the world was made by God for God. You can't understand what it even means to be human until you understand that man was made by God for God. And now Matthew is saying you can't even understand your life as you know it and reality as you know it unless you understand that Jesus Christ came as the Messiah King to take back the world as God for God. You can't understand it. Jesus is coming is a history-making, world-shattering event. Nothing of, rel- nothing of even close to the importance and significance of Jesus' coming has ever happened in human history. It's changed everything. That's why history is divided in two. Even if they want to change the name of it, it doesn't matter. Everybody knows it. The history is divided in two at the coming of Jesus Christ. And besides all this... It's striking that the two Old Testament accounts use the phrase in terms of, uh, of a creation account. Because in other places in the New Testament, Jesus' coming is clearly signaled as a beginning of a new creation. And I believe you even see that in the book of Matthew, right? When Jesus comes, what does he do? He heals the sick and he raises the dead. What's he doing? He's saying, look, the old way things used to be are going away. And a new, something new is happening. Something, I'm coming in to bring something new in. I'm undoing the old and bringing in the new. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he did in his life, death, and, and resurrection. That a new, new life has been inaugurated. That's why the Apostle Paul says that when a person is born again, when he believes in Jesus Christ and is made into a new person, he says, Paul says, behold, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if we are in Christ, we are the beginning of the new creation. Remember, the Bible says a new heavens and a new earth is coming. But Jesus said, well, I'm already bringing it in. I'm already kicking it off. If, your spirit, if my spirit dwells in you, you've already been made new. And I'm going to keep making you new until I make you completely new in the age to come. So number one, we see that Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. Number two... We see that Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with David. Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with David. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, if you ever, you know, when you read a book, you know, the authors are going to, most of the time they're going to agonize over the first line of the book. Why? Because the first line, I mean, it sets the tone for the whole thing. Matthew had lots of options about the way he could have opened his book, but he chose, he chose this. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we have to ask, if we're going to interpret the book, we have to ask Matthew, why? Why, why signal at the very beginning of your book, why is it such a big deal that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham? We have to ask. And so first we're going to look at the son of David. Why is it so significant that Jesus is the son of David? Well, we've talked about this before, but it's just it's worth reiterating. You see, David is known, David is known as the king of Israel. If you read your Old Testament, in Kings and Chronicles, every other king in the Old Testament is evaluated by how well they upheld the example of King David. 
in their, in their leadership of the nation. David was a man after God's own heart. And the most significant aspect of King David's life, one of the most significant and important aspects is that God made a covenant with David. God made a, a, a covenant with David. And covenants are, um, are so important because they're the backbone of the storyline of Scripture. The storyline of Scripture is carried forward by the covenant that God, by the covenants that God makes. And there are actually remarkably few formal covenants in the Bible. You, most of the time, they, they understand there'll be a covenant with creation, a covenant with Noah, Abraham, David. Uh, Abraham, and then the, the old covenant, the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, then the covenant with David, and then the new covenant. Okay, so there's just really just a handful of covenants. Okay, and in this covenant, in this covenant, so God personally came to David through the prophet Nathan and said and made him uh, this promise in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see that? God made a promise to David. David wanted to build God a house. That's the background. He wanted to build a temple for God. And then but then God comes back to David and says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. And then he flips it. He says, you're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. See how God works? And house, and it's a play on words because house could mean a literal building or it could mean a, a family, a dynasty. And God tells David, I'm going to give you an, an everlasting dynasty such that one of your offspring, David, is going to rule over my people forever. That's what it says, forever. That's a... That's an unbelievable promise. If you go back and read that passage, the whole next chapter is, the whole next part of that passage is David praying to God in just awestruck wonder that God would make such a promise to him. That God would tell him that, he is, that his family would last forever. And that one of his sons would reign over the, the people of God forever. And you see, this promise to David is so crucial to understanding the Old Testament Especially, I mean, from David on, especially in the prophets. Because the, the promise gets picked up and developed by the prophets who came after David of the, in, the, in the prophecies that they would make. For example, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, a famous uh, Christmas passage. He says, for, us, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on, upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see this? Isaiah picks up on the promise of David and receives this revelation from God, and he promises somebody of unbelievable stature. Who in the world could ever claim to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace? A human being. And yet, Isaiah says he's coming, and he's going to sit on the throne of David forever. Jeremiah chapter 23 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So branch being right, a branch grows out of the root. 
So he's saying, out of David, I'm going to raise up a branch, someone who will come from him, who will do what? He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And then finally, Ezekiel 37 He says, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. So the Jews knew That a king was coming. An offspring of David was coming. And when he came, things like this would happen. Forgiveness of sins. Cleanse from their backslidings. Hearts to love and trust and obey God. To be God, to be God's people and he are God forever. And to be one under one shepherd. Things, Things like that would happen when the king would come. And so when Matthew begins his book by calling Jesus, the son of David, a a receptive, understanding Jew would know immediately what Matthew's trying to say. That Jesus is the one who a thousand years after David fulfilled the Davidic covenant. That Jesus is the one that 700 years after Isaiah, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That 600 years after Ezekiel, he is the king who will deliver their people and restore them to their God. Jesus is the one. And when Matthew is writing this book, he knows what he's doing. He's saying that thousands of years of waiting, of agony, of pain, of loss, of sin, of rebellion, is coming to a close because the king is come. The king has come in Jesus Christ. So number one, Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. Number two, Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with David. And number three, Jesus' coming fulfills fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. So he, he calls Jesus here the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, we have to ask Matthew, why Abraham? Why choose, why choose uh, Abraham to be a of uh, a, a patriarch, a forefather, to mention about Jesus here, and you, you, you know, at, at first blush, you would think, you know, well, every Jew's a descendant of Abraham, right? Every Jew's a descendant of Abraham. What, what's what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus being a descendant of Abraham? Every Jew is, but clearly, Matthew intends to say more than that. He's not just saying that Jesus was a Jew. He's saying something along the same lines about what he had to say about David. That, that just as God made a covenant with David, we also know that God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. And so we, we know that Matthew is not super concerned about just the fact that Jesus being an offspring of Abraham. Because later, just a, few, a couple chapters later in the book of Matthew... Matthew will quote John the Baptist as saying, Matthew 3, 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. 
So you see what John the Baptist is saying? He's saying it doesn't really matter at the end of the day if you're a Jew, if you're descended from Abraham, because God could take this rock and make him a Jew. What matters is do you, do you repent of your sins and follow God, follow Christ? That's what matters. Your, your family offspring doesn't matter. Some people always say, I was raised a Christian. Well, I hope you were raised a Christian, but you weren't born a Christian, and going to church and being raised in a Christian home don't make you a Christian. Do you bear fruits in keeping with repentance and follow Jesus Christ with your life? That's how you know you're a Christian. God could raise up church attenders from the rocks outside. Doesn't matter. Do we know, love, follow Christ? So Matthew's not just concerned that Jesus is a Jew, that he's a child of Abraham. It's covenantal in purpose. God made a covenant with Abraham. You remember? Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what's the promise? The promise is this. That Abraham, one man Abraham, was going to bless the whole world. That's the promise. But of course, how could that happen? When did that happen? It didn't happen in the Old Testament because uh, the, Jews, the, the, uh, the, the Jews in the Old Testament, all they did was disobey God. In fact, they just disobeyed and disobeyed to the point that God even kicked them out of the land he promised to give them. That he promised Abraham he would give them. Israel didn't bless the world. Not in the Old Testament. But on the first line of the New Testament. Matthew says, The king has come. The son of Abraham is here. The blessing of the nations has come. And we know this. We know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because the beginning of Matthew, he calls him the son of Abraham, and that promise to Abraham was that in Abraham all the nations of the world will be blessed. And how does Matthew end his book? Matthew ends his book in Matthew 28, 18, saying, Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How did one man Abraham bless the world? His, here's how. His great, 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 grandson is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. But everyone who turns from their sin and believes in his name, this king who has come, who bows the knee to King Jesus, who believes in his sinless life, his, his payment for sin on the cross, dying the death that we deserve on the cross for us, his rising from the dead, victorious over death, proving that he had forgiven sin. Therefore, sin no longer has its grip, its a hold on us. Therefore, if our sins are forgiven, we will ultimately die, but we'll be raised from the dead just as he, will, he was raised from the dead and live forever in a world free from sin. If you will turn from your sin and follow this King Jesus, you too will receive the blessing God promised Abraham, forgiveness of your sins and life everlasting. 
What more blessing could you possibly want? And to this very day, that blessing is going across all over the world. Today is Sunday. Today is the Lord's Day. We gather on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And all over this world, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. In Africa, in Asia, in South America, in Europe. His name is being proclaimed, and I, I, I can't help but believe that somebody right now is being born again. And they're receiving the blessing of Abraham, the forgiveness of their sins, and life everlasting. It could happen, it could happen right here, right now. If you'll believe on Jesus, if you'll turn from your sins, the king who has come, Believe in him, trust in him, and follow him. The blessing is for you. The blessing is for all the world. You see all the, the book of Matthew? The entire book of Matthew is going to happen in like 50 square miles, a tiny plot of land in the land of Israel, but God wasn't going to keep the blessing there. It goes out into all the world, which is why 2,000 years after Matthew wrote this book, we're standing here thousands of miles away worshiping Jesus as king because God is taking his blessing to the whole world. And he's going to make sure it gets there through you and through me. So what do we see? We see Jesus' coming is a history-changing event. Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with David. And Jesus' coming fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. What we're going to see through this story of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you bank your life on it? When the government comes to your house or your job and tells you, hey, the government's king, you have to do what we say, are you going to say, no, Jesus is king? What are you going to say? Who's your king? Kanye West understands that Jesus is king. The Bible says one day everybody will know that Jesus is king. What we're going to talk about in Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said he brought in the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven is also something that, that's coming. It's going to come in his fullness one day. Jesus, the Bible teaches, one day is going to physically, bodily descend with a crown on his head. And every knee is going to bow to him. And if you, if you have already trusted in him and already have followed him, he has already given you citizenship in his kingdom. And he's going to call you up from the ground. And he says, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. That was mine. But if you didn't know Jesus, and if you live for yourself, and if you continued in your sin and just did you your whole life, when the dead are raised, your knee's going to bow. But he's, he's going to say, I don't know you. I don't know you. So there's an option. There's a kingdom that is coming. There's a king that's greater than the United States of America, king that's greater than China or India or any other nation, greater than any military and army. When Jesus comes with his angels and flaming fire and the sword comes out of his mouth, no army, no nuclear war will be able to withstand the wrath of the Lamb of God. And when he comes for his own, he will bring his kingdom and he will establish his kingdom on this earth and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the king. And if you belong to him, you have nothing to fear. And if you don't belong to him, 
the amazing thing is this. You can come to him now. And he'll swing the gates of his kingdom wide open and say, come on in. If you'll surrender your life to him. Trust in him. Follow him. Love him. Serve him. Obey him. Because the king is come. And he's coming back. And I pray everyone in this room will be ready for it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus is king, that the king has come. Oh, God, what a gift to be part of the kingdom of God. And I pray this morning, Lord, that it is something that we would not take for granted, but that we would treasure it, that we would love it, that we would live for you, King Jesus. I pray that right now, Lord, there may be some of us, God, struggling with sin, There's some part of our life where we still want to be the Lord and not you. I pray, Lord, that you would give us that person this morning the strength to say, no, Jesus is the king even in this part of my life. And give them the strength to turn away from it and surrender it to you. And perhaps this morning, Lord, there's somebody who deep down in their heart of hearts knows that they're not yet a citizen of your kingdom. I pray that this morning they would see that that they can come. They can come into the kingdom this morning by turning from their sins, Jesus, in their hearts, calling out to you, Lord Jesus, and saying, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, change me. Jesus, I surrender. You are the king. And not just that, but I want you to be my king. I want you to reign in me. And Lord, I believe that any heart that truly cries that out to you this morning, you will save them and you will change them. And you will call them out on that day as belonging to you. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The altar is open. If you have sin you'd like to confess, if you have something you just want to talk to God about, if you have somebody you want to pray for, I invite you to come and pray to the Lord. If you'd like to pray with me, I'd be glad to do so. If you'd like to talk with me about how you can follow Christ, or if you, if you have followed Christ, you want to talk to somebody, you want to join our church, become a, a, a member of Believer's Baptism, please do that. Please respond as we sing the song of decision.
dried our tears at the feet of Jesus. Grace abounds to all who found the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, 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 holy is the What a sweet time of worship this morning. All right, guys. Well, um, I'm going to close this in prayer, um, and then I'll uh, turn it over to Mr. Paul for an announcement to make. Oh, okay. Okay, well, I'll pray, and then we'll do that. Dear Lord, we love you. Lord, we just praise you for just the greatness that you have, Lord, that you are the king that reigns forever. And Lord, uh, we thank you that your grace has shown us your love. Lord, I pray that for those of us that know you, that you'll just rekindle that love for you anew this morning. For those that don't, Lord, I pray that they will come to know you today. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, we'll, we'll now enter into a church conference.